I'm Nick Tuckey, New Zealand's Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Nick Tuckey tēnei. He konai i pirangi tēnei e pā ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about the work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Today on the show, we have the wonderful wetland bird ecologist, Emma Williams. Kia ora, Emma. Kia ora, Nick. Ko Emma Williams, toku ingoa. Katie Papa Atafai, aho e mahi ana. Hi, Nick. Um, my name is Emma Williams, and I work for the Department of Conservation. Emma, tell us a little bit about what your role is at DOC. So I'm a science advisor. So basically, I um, do science and uh, try to address knowledge gaps with some of the species that DOC works on. And primarily, you are and have always been a bit of a bird nerd, aren't you? I have. I've mostly specialised on cryptic species. Um, and wetland birds, because a lot of wetland birds are cryptic. Tell me a bit about what cryptic means. To me, that sounds like they've got old Harry Potter's invisibility cloak on over their heads. What, is, what does it mean to be a cryptic species? That's pretty accurate. So um, a cryptic species is one that's difficult to detect. Um, so there's four different ways that a, a cryptic species uh, like, can be cryptic. One is they can be visually cryptic. It's difficult to see as that's like your camouflage, like your chameleons. Um, they can be vocally cryptic, where you can't hear them. And then there's two other that are more to do with us, like we can't find them because they're inaccessible. So spatially cryptic, we call it. And then temporally cryptic, because maybe they only call at certain times of a day when we're not there. So wetland birds do that quite a lot. They call around sunrise and sunset when we're not really out in the wetland that much. So what is a wetland? That's a... A, a tricky question, Nick, because there's so many different types. And if I was getting all sciencey on you, you know, there's there's ephemeral wetlands and coastal wetlands. And so there's a, a huge variety. But basically, it's anywhere that's swampy and muddy. What is it that got you into wetland birds specifically? Because wetlands aren't that accessible. Um, especially large wetlands. Getting into the heart of them is really difficult. You've got to get um, a boat in and you're quite loud when you move through a wetland. Um, so it's um, it's got that extra element of a challenge. So that was what attracted me to it. Does it have also the extra element of the challenge that we've managed to destroy most of the wetlands in New Zealand in the past 100 years or so? Yeah, so we've, and particularly in New Zealand, we've got the need to work on wetlands um, because we've lost 90% of our, of our wetland habitats here. In New Zealand, and the and the remaining ten percent is severely under threat. So I know, for example, that uh, one of your great loves in terms of species is the bittern, and I'd almost guarantee there will be people listening right now who've never heard of one. Can you tell us a little bit about a bittern and what makes it special? Bitterns are in the heron family. They're about knee high, um, and. Uh, it's not a surprise that some people won't know about them because they are masters of disguise. They're amazing. Um, I call them the ninjas of the wetland. <laughs> um, and it's just because they've, they've got all those problems that I described about being cryptic. They've got all of them. They live in an inaccessible habitat. They've got this beautiful plumage that makes them blend perfectly into their background. So basically they look like the reeds. 
Um, and they can actually manipulate that plumage, that, uh, that coloration, to do whatever they want to do. So if they want you to see them, then they'll be more relaxed in their body and the lines across their body won't actually line up with the vegetation, so they stand out. And as soon as they don't want you to see them, they straighten their whole body up, they put their beak up to the air, so they look really silly if they're standing on a road or something, but if you're in the wetland, the lines move perfectly so that they line up with the reeds and they're gone. So they can disappear right in front of your eyes. This is where I'm actually cursing the fact that this is a podcast and not a video cast because I am not very good at impersonating many animals, but I do know that when a bittern doesn't want to be seen, it does this. Yes, <laughs> Nick is right now put her hands above her head and <laughs> staring at the ceiling. Staring at the ceiling, yeah, yeah, so amazing. Another thing that fascinates me about bitterns uh, is that they the noise they make. Yes. Tell me about that. So it's only the males that do this, um, but they boom. To fully appreciate the sound, you have to understand the morphological, the body change that they actually go through to be able to produce this, this sound. So it's to do with testosterone, hence why it's only the males that do it. Um, so as he approaches the breeding seal, season, the male, his testosterone will start to build up and then he'll, his, his neck will thicken. So if you, can, if you ever have one in the hand, you can feel it. It like, feels like jelly. Um, and it thickens because basically they're going to become like a bagpipe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they need to be able to cope with a lot of air being squeezed out of them within a short space of time. <laughs> I, so, I'm sorry, I just have a, a picture in my head. I've seen pictures of you holding bitterns, and now I have a picture in my head of you like squeezing one like, under your arm. That is not recommended. Please do not do that at home. <laughs> no, the bird does it themselves. So... Um, so what he does is he, he does these big inhalations, gets his his chest full of air, and then he'll just he'll he'll <laughs> he'll make himself a, an amphitheater by squishing down the the vegetation around him. He'll hunker down. So I'm actually doing this right now. <laughs> and then he um he'll just suddenly make a noise. So He'll do that in a sequence. So that's what we call by a boom. It's actually a sequence of those noises. So do you want me to teach you how to do it, Nick? Yes, please. I, okay. do, I would definitely want to learn this. This will be my next pub trick. Okay, all right, all right. So you have to suck in as much air as you possibly can. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> more, more. And then go. <laughs> and that... Friends was a poor boom at the end there, which also happens with a bitten. So what they're trying to do is they're competing with each other. So you and I were basically having like a little standoff there where you were like telling me you're the sexiest male ever. And I'm going, no, 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 Nick, I'm the sexiest male ever. And to be sexy, you have to get the best sounding room yeah. and the most of them within a train. And the longer you go for, the more likely you are to kind of go, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they're competing to do. So they're trying to make the other bird collapse, get, go like beyond me. his abilities. And, and like, yeah. And is it like uh, Kakapo, who also boom, yeah. but it's slightly different technique. And for Kakapo, the, they're like going for the Barry White, where the lowest boom is the sexiest boom. Is it the same or is it just sort of the volume and trying to outcompete the fellow down the road? 
We think with Bitten, it's the, it's the volume. They're actually trying to advertise the furthest. They want to get their message out across the whole of the wetland. Um, and then, yeah, the quality of the call and the length of the train is there because you've got to be good at it to be able to do that. In sort of September until um, December time is when they're booming. And at the beginning of that season, they will have to practice because they're going through that morphological change, that body change. And so even if they were good at it normally and they're an old, you know, male that's generally quite sexy, at the beginning of the season, he will need to practice still. So you can hear them going, (coughs) (laughs) and making all sorts of kind of noises. And the ladies will be going around, kind of checking them out, going, oh, he's not so good. I'll I'll try, you know, I'll try this one. (laughs) That is fantastic. You will have to come out with us at some point, Nick, to see them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I want to come out with you because I understand you've just found out some pretty amazing information about bitterns. We have. So um, we have just, um, we've, we've had two big, since I've been working on bitterns, which is quite a while now, we've had two big, um, I guess, groundbreaking discoveries. One was in 2016. We discovered that they were a lot rarer than we originally thought. They used to be nationally vulnerable. Um, and now we know they're nationally critical, which is the same threat classification as a kakapo. And the only way it can go if it gets worse is extinction. So there's a lot that needs to be done with them. Um, and so we started managing them then. But we thought at that time that they um, were quite localised in their movements, that they would stay within a region and just use a small network of wetlands. But very recently, thanks to GPS technology, we've actually worked out that they go very long distances. Um, so this happened um, last uh, October time. We put a GPS on our first Canterbury button and um, it disappeared off. All of a sudden it turned up in Blenheim and that was, that was new information for us. So that's 330 kilometres and that's showing that actually these are national birds. We haven't had one go between the North Island and the South Island yet, but this is early days. But um, basically, the yeah, the the whole of the North Island it's the same kind of population of birds. What kind of population is there? Do you think roughly? So we, uh, the official estimate that was from the eighties, and um, was that, that we had a thousand birds, thousand birdhens, um, but that was not doing any kind of national census. So they will have been double counting some birds. So they, that was basically a bunch of experts get together from different regions going, oh, well, we, we've got about 20 in our region. We've got about, and then the other region saying, okay, we've got about 30 and then it, adding it all up. And so now that we know that they move across regions. They could have been counting the same guy yeah, twice. And they're doing this between the, across the breeding season. So within a relatively short space of time. Yeah. So I, I suppose it's just what you've just told us just demonstrates that value of science advice, doesn't it? Because that whole learning new things throws the management process we had for bitterns before out the window, essentially, isn't it? And it says, whoops, instead of managing this small area which we thought was going to be good for bittern, you now have to manage the whole lot. How does that work? Yeah, so it's um, it's completely thrown everything out because um, – Doc's whole system of managing wildlife is by a site-by-site basis. We have these things called EMUs, which is um, our ecological management units. And we have SMUs as well, which is... Species. Our species management units, yes. Unfortunately, that means that we're managing on a site-by-site basis. So basically it says um, Fangamarino wetland is an EMU for Britain. But Kapuatai wetland, 
which is actually quite close to Fangamarino wetland, isn't for Bitten. But we know now that Bitten need both of those sites and also need the sites in the Bay of Plenty and also need the sites up in Northland. It's the same Bitten's. So if you're only managing a tiny proportion of, a bit of, a, of an animal's habitat, it's kind of like, in humans' terms, having good health and safety in one part of your, you know, just just being safe at home, but the rest of the time when you go to work, you're doing crazy things and not being safe. It's not, it's not going to work, you know, especially if I, I worked out at one site that um, in one year, the Bittens were spending 70% of their time outside of the managed site. And the rest of the time they're on farmland um, and they're in drains and, um, and there's no predator control in those places. Um, you know, there's no protection. Um, people don't even know they're there. Um, I had one farmer in the Hawke's Bay when I told them that a bittern was in a little patch of Valpo at the bottom of their land. They got really, really excited and they were like, oh, well, thank God we found that out because we were going to remove that, that patch of Valpo. And that's the only little patch that that bird has throughout the whole winter. So it was hanging on on that one patch. If they'd removed it, it wouldn't have had anywhere else to go. So it's really significant to us. Um, yeah, and makes a big difference. So you've just touched on something which I think is almost the key to a lot of your success, which is around advocacy, because you love to get out and tell people about bitterns and <laughs> get people excited about these invisible species we've never heard of. Uh, and you've got a bit of a partner in crime in this, haven't you? I have. <laughs> tell, I think tell us about Kimmy. She's actually better than I am. Actually. <laughs> she's awesome. Um, so I have a conservation dog, Kimmy the Bitten Dog. Um, and she comes around and does school visits with me. Um, and yeah, she loves bittens just as much as I do. She, uh, she has some quirky little, she does some little tricks for the school children and, uh, we get her out to help demonstrate, um, how hard it is to be in the wetland and that kind of thing. Yeah, she's. So how did it come about that, because I've met Kimmy, we've been lucky enough to have a, a school visit at work <laughs> with Kimmy, uh, how did it come about that she became a, a bittern dog? It was completely random. She actually started out as a search and rescue puppy, um, not a bittern dog, for the first six months of her life. So um, what happened was um, I was in Palmerston North doing my master's on bitterns, early days, so I'd only just started on bitterns. Um, I was at the same time doing a bit of work for Doc and uh, also um, in my spare time doing search and rescue. And I was helping hide for the search dogs and I, it was great fun and I loved it. Um, it was fantastic and decided I wanted to learn how to train a dog. And so uh, they supported me and encouraged me and, and we got Kimmy. Um, and Kimmy was a little bit too quiet as a search and rescue if you've ever met a search and rescue dog they have to bark manically at people until the handler gets to them and if that person moves they stay with the person and they just bark and bark and bark and Kimmy was this quiet little lovely puppy I think she she absolutely could have done it but she wasn't naturally didn't fit the mold of all the other kinds. she's not an extrovert <laughs> yeah <laughs> She's a totally introverted dog. And all the, you know, all these dogs are barking like crazy all the time. And she's like, what on earth is going on? You know? <laughs> so, um, and at the same time, um, I was, I, it just happened to be for my, for my master's, I had to write a piece on what an ideal, or the different ways that we could start trying to find bittens. Because my task was actually not about saving bittens at that time. They weren't considered to be endangered enough. How can we find them and find out more about them? And uh, there's uh, 
there's four different ways that you can uh, can detect a bird. Uh, it's the seeing them, uh, hearing them, which of course through the booms, um, and um, then heat through their heat, so using thermal imagery, and then there's through scent as well. So I was writing a little piece about scent, and and I had to write the ideal characteristics of a dog. And Kimmy was lying on the floor in front of me, you know, <laughs> at my feet as I was writing this, and I was like. Um, and the other thing she used to do as a search and rescue dog when we were training it was she was always running off and standing in wetlands because she loves water. <laughs> oh, because like, she's a lab, isn't she's she? She's a lab, she, and she's a black lab. So on a hot day, she just loves to be in the water. That's her. That's her happy place. So I was writing this, and and it, it was coming out. So must be a. She's also a small Labrador. Must be a small dog, light, quiet, very calmly introverted nature, not too barky. And um, and then loves water, and there she was. <laughs> <laughs> so you literally had that light bulb over yeah. your head while you were finishing your chapter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm a massive fan of the Conservation Dog Program, and it's supported by Kiwi Bank. Hey, it is. Yes, it is. They give a lot of support to all different types of conservation dogs because we have a variety of different types of dogs. What makes a conservation dog different from any other dog on conservation land? Okay, so conservation dogs are um, are official certified dogs. So here in New Zealand, we have the Conservation Dog Dogs Program, which is run by Dog. Um, and so Kimmy and I have a series of mentors and trainers and assessors, which um, make sure that we're up to a certain standard. So safety of the bird is paramount. Um, and Kimmy always wears a muzzle, even though she's specially trained, so she doesn't touch the bird. Um, even then just to make sure there's no mistake because at the end of the day we're talking about an animal and wildlife and the bird can be just as bad as the dog sometimes <laughs> so she always just wears a muzzle to just make sure that there's absolutely nothing that can can happen. So tell me a little bit about what a bittern dog does. Um, so she helps me, she's helped me recapture birds and find birds that don't have transmitters on. So we, we have, at the moment, we have some great methods that we've developed for catching male bitterns because they're easier to get into traps. Um, um, but we haven't got good methods for finding the females or the chicks, ones that aren't booming and that won't respond to playback because that's how we attract them into the, into the traps is through playing their calls, getting them really wound up with that testosterone so they think it's another male and then they come in to investigate that other male and that's how we catch them. Um, so she, she helps with that um, and she also helps me recapture radio-tagged birds because... Um, while I'm in the wetland, um, I can follow them with the radio transmitter to a certain extent. But as you get really, really close, it gets very hard to localise them. And they also tend to start hiding. So one of the things they do is really hunker down and sit in the water. Um, and it suppresses the sound of the transmitter. Um, so then she helps me find that and helps me catch them. So she's trained to f smell out bitterns yes. and ignore all the other wonderful yes. smells around her yes and she's trained to take me to it so take me to the live bird yeah but she doesn't pick it up or do anything no she's not allowed anywhere near it and actually she doesn't she doesn't want to because of that introverted nature <laughs> she, and she's frightened of them 
<laughs> she is a little bit frightened of them. It's true. When you get really close to them, I can tell because she's she starts looking back at me like, come on, come on, you, you take over now, you know. And it's because um, bitten are actually uh, quite aggressive. So if you're ever picking up a bitten, I would I would thoroughly recommend that you put safety goggles on um, because uh, they are part of the ninja of the wetland style uh, behaviours are that they're very, very fast at stabbing at things. And there was this one occasion where um, I was releasing a bittern. We named them all after deceased crooners. So this one was called Bing Crosby. And I came <laughs> to release it. And I had it tucked under my arm. And we, me and the bird were quite relaxed. And I was just looking around for a nice, quiet place where I could put it down and let it go. And by the time... Um, I had realized that, so so just to explain how you hold a bit, and I got it under my arm and then my hand around the base of its neck. Like a bagpipe. Like like a bagpipe, yes. So, so um, and this bird managed to get out. And by the time I realized it got its head out of my fingers, it had already hit my glasses by the eye. So they do go for the eyes. They Because your pupils look like something that's, even if they're they not should being attack. aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they can watch it moving. They've got really, like a cat, they've got really sensitive eyesight. Actually, on that note, I think people really underestimate uh, bird ecologists and bird scientists in terms of how, how stroppy and dangerous birds can be. You know, because we <laughs> tend to think in New Zealand we don't have lions and tigers and bears and so everything's all benign uh, and birds are, are fine. I've uh, A little blue penguin chick gave me a black eye once and when I was doing my dissertation I was studying penguins and I didn't like to hold them too hard because I didn't want to hurt them but you do have to hold birds quite firmly and the first day of my field work a penguin wiggled its its arm out and smashed me in the in the face. So birds are dangerous and you have to be very <laughs> tough. You have to be like a like a lion tamer to work with some of our birds. Bittens are definitely one of those type of birds. They're yeah they can be quite stroppy if they don't want you doing something to them. So yeah. And so Kimmy's totally aware of that. And um, when we get really close to the bird, she's like, it's your job now. You, you, you deal with this. Yeah, I found it. I showed you where it was. It's yours now. What's been one of your most treasured conservation experiences? I actually find working with wildlife is such a treasured thing anyway. Um, it's a special thing to be able to do um, and learning about them. So every day is quite, it's quite special in that way, even if I'm being stabbed by a bittern and it doesn't seem like it at the time. I loved... Um, Working out how to catch these guys, that was a really special um, kind of time for me in terms of bitten conservation because uh, you were getting into the birds' heads a bit more, like the psychology of male bitten. Think like a bitten. <laughs> yeah, you had to really think like a bitten. And that's kind of a, you know, it's a lot of fun to try and work out what they're, what they're doing. So, um, yeah, that's one of my favourite experiences. Bitterns are the apex predator in a wetland, aren't they? Yes. So what does that mean if you if you lose bitterns from the wetland? What, what does that mean in terms of the function of the ecosystem overall? Um, it means they're very important in that in that tree. So uh, they, uh, I mean, they eat mice and rats as well as as their native food. So they're important for keeping those kind of populations down. Um, and they're an important part of the balance um, 
in in the wetland ecosystems. Yeah, without them, you'd have other other species. A lot of their prey would become out of control, and yeah. Emma, this one will probably be a bit hard for you because you do tend to have quite a few of these, but can you tell us a little bit about one of your greatest conservation science success stories? I think it's got to be uh, when we finally caught our first bittern because before I th- before we started the project that's now the bittern project, the dog bittern project, um, there'd only been one person that had caught bitterns before in the past and that was in the 80s, Philip Teal, who works now for Fishing Game. He did his master's on bitterns at Fangamarino Wetland and he was tasked with trying to catch them. And he tried so many different methods, which were the latest of the time and and didn't succeed with them. It's a very difficult site to work in. It was, um, which is why we, we didn't start there. Uh, we learned from him. But um, he did manage to catch three in the end, but using a helicopter and a net gun from a helicopter. Wow. <laughs> so flying over the top of the bird and the downdraft meant that they didn't want to take off. And then he would get the net gun out. Nobody nowadays is going to let me do that. <laughs> I failed <laughs> Literally as a, sitting as a student to convince, me to, like any, uh, to convince anybody to give me a helicopter to just try, you know, which, and we didn't want to do it anyway because... Um, it's not the best way for the bird. So luckily for me, since then, um, the British team and the American team had come up with different methods of catching their bitterns, which are different species from ours. So one of them is using mist nets and then you play calls. And so um, you're trying to attract the bittern um, towards a net and then you use calls either side of the net to make it ball into the net. And we use mist nets a lot through forest across New Zealand, don't we? But primarily forest birds, bats yep. also. They basically look like, just for the listener, a badminton net strung between two sites and then we're trying to do everything we can to lure them in. Does that sound about right to yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other method that the Americans had used was a cage trap, um, which was quite large. It could spit, it can fit Kimmy in there. Um, <laughs> and it's got a mirror in the in the back of it. Um I don't put Kimmy in there, just to... <laughs> she did, Great disclaimer! She did once accidentally walk in because I'd set it in the field with, and because it's got a mirror at the back and then we smash a track, which has this trap in the middle of it. As you're walking down the track, all you can see is the mirror. That's the purpose of the track is to line them up with the mirror. So when we went to check a trap once and she was with me, she saw her reflection and she was like, oh, it's a Labrador, hi. <laughs> no, it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> anyway, I digress. So there's these two different methods. Um, so we started off with trialing those. Um, and uh, with, with the mist nets, we... we we spent two weeks battling away trying to get a bitten into a mist net. And one that we've now caught, it's we called Barry White, was the first one that we ever caught. And we got him so wound up with this mist net that he was walking up and down it. He was going around it, over it, under it, everything but going into it. It was a really frustrating time for us <laughs> as a team because we were, you know, we were right there with almost catching but not catching. And at the same time, we weren't getting any success with the traps. And um, then we realised um, through the process of working on the mist nets and getting that behaviour where the bittern, because what a bittern actually does, this is we only work this out through, through trying it and failing <laughs> miserably, is um, when you play a call, if you're trying to catch a kaka or a mopok, they will fly in and then be around the net. But a bittern doesn't actually do that. If you boom at a bittern, it will just boom back 
and say it's 400 meters away, it will then, after an hour of booming, it will move maybe another 100 meters closer. Then after an hour, it might move another 100 meters. But basically, they just sit there for ages yelling at each other because they're having that standoff. So, um, so that meant it took a long time to get the birds near the nets. And we were, as a team, staying up until 3 o'clock in the morning trying to catch these birds and being exhausted. And meanwhile, like, so that was also through seeing that, we realised why the traps weren't working as well, because ethically we were checking the traps every hour. So what the same thing is happening to the traps and that it's taking the birds a long time to come in to the traps. And um, and, and so... And then you stomp past and scare them all away again. Exactly, exactly. So, but you, of course you don't know that because you don't see the birds. This is one of the difficult things about working on a cryptic species. You don't even see what they're doing <laughs> and how they're responding. And so... From this experience, we finally, um, it was actually one morning uh, after four days of trying to catch Barry White and getting all these behaviours, the whole team is absolutely knackered from these early mornings. And we decided, okay, we're just going to have to have a day off. And I sent the team home. But I thought I had one person that was on standby that lived locally. And so when I got up after having a bit of a lie-in, I decided, it just kind of came to me that the trap because the bird had been attacking the speaker the night before and walking up and down, I'd got the right behaviour that I wanted, but it wasn't the right tool using a misnet. So I just randomly decided, okay, I'll go and stick this trap out and we'll see what happens. I, I still wasn't expecting it to work because we'd had so many failures. I was sort of like, it was like moving down a decision tree and that was just like the next step to try to see what happens. And um, so I stuck this trap out and then as I was walking back, I thought I'd better check in that my standby person is there because ethically we can't, we needed two people to handle the bird. So I rang him up and what I didn't realise is he'd gone to the airport to pick up a family relative so he wasn't around. So I went back to this trap to close it because I didn't have the standby person and when I arrived there in this trap was a bitten and I, wow. I absolutely couldn't believe it. I was in a state of shock and I started running back. I, we covered the trap to keep the bird quiet um, and make sure that nothing can harm the bird so a harrier can't hurt it. Um, and then I started dashing back to the, um, to the field centre in an absolute panic because we can only keep the bird for a certain amount of time before we have to release them. So I needed somebody else to come and help. And I rang Daniel Winchester, who works for Doc, and at the time he was working out of the Napier office. And um, what I didn't realise at the time was he still had his mobile phone on Bluetooth mode from the night before because he'd been out with us at the Miss Nets. And so, and we'd been Bluetoothing the speakers, um, the sound across to the speakers from our phones. So my voice, he told me this later, brought, came broadcasting out from his car as he was driving because it synced with the radio. So he gets me on loudspeaker going, Dan, I was running so I couldn't breathe. I was like, Dan, I've caught a bitten. And he apparently went, <laughs> almost crashed his car. I had to pull over so that he could be safe. And he was like, you've done what? <laughs> I was like, I know, I thought I had John on standby and, uh, you know, I, there's been a, a miscommunication and I, I, I caught a bit and I need somebody to get here ACP. And he said, don't worry about it, Em, we'll be there. And then it was like a doc SWAT team just descended on us, <laughs> <laughs> just like vomp and we got the job done. So, yeah, and that because 
you kind of need a little success like that to be able to to I mean we were we were really demoralized at that stage you know we've been working so hard and then not appearing to get anywhere with these birds and then all of a sudden catching one and from there everything got easier because once you've got your first transmitter on then you're able to follow birds you're able to test methods on a bird that you know is there <laughs> you can train your dog on a bird that is no is there and yeah everything gets easier so I think that's probably the greatest um, yeah what I'd say was my best success story. Well done. Can you tell us a little bit about what has, you know, what's been your weirdest day at work? That's a really hard question because every day is weird. <laughs> but it's not weird. It's actually normal to us, science advisors. And the days that stand out as weirdest are the ones where you've done something in the presence of somebody else and they've kind of, you've kind of seen what you've done through their lens and you've realized, oh, that's not normal. <laughs> so these kind of things happen to time to time too. So I can give you a couple of examples of them. It usually happens every time I go into a mitre 10, because when you're buying um, pieces of equipment for like, you know, we're doing the weirdest things. We're like trying to create a cage trap or putting harness on, harnesses on birds. And we're using everyday items to do this. So I think every science advisor will have a story where they've got into Mitre 10 or Bunnings and they've gone, I need this little piece of, of, <laughs> of plastic that's, you know, about a centimetre long. It's got to be soft. Um, it's got to have a hole that's three millimetres. <laughs> you know, they'll look at you and go, uh, okay. So they'll show you various things. None of them will be what you want because it's so specific what you need. Eventually they'll go, what do you need it for? <laughs> and you'd be like, oh, um, yeah, it's for a weak link of a harness of a bitten, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> <like>, what? <laughs> what do you wish that the New Zealand public understood more when it comes to wetlands and, and wetland bird species like bitterns? Um, I wish they understood how valuable wetlands are. Uh, it is true how they're the kidneys of, um, of the environment. And so... It's, you know, essential that we do look after them, but they're seen as kind of swampy, you know, mosquito-infested places. Um, I, a lot of the wetlands that I've visited, people would dump stuff in them, and it's just it's just tragic, really. Um, I also wish that people um, understood more about um, how tragic it is to lose things, um, because not only is it um, irreversible, but... Even if you can get some of that back, the cost of getting that back is so much more. And, you know, we do have a water quality problem here in New Zealand, which is is receiving some attention now, thank goodness. But um, the cost of us now recovering that is, it just would have been better 30, 40, 50 years ago if we just hadn't have got to that situation in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I, I just wish everybody knew how wonderful wetlands are and, um, yeah, protected them even those small patches that are on the bottom of your land that you just think are just nothing that's probably where bittens are hanging on you know that's so true and you know there was a, a Colmar Brunton report that came out recently that demonstrates that 70 something percent of New Zealanders consider uh, freshwater quality their highest priority issue so second only to um, concerns about housing uh, and, but there's a disconnect, right? So we're all really, really, really worried about freshwater quality, and yet we've got this ecosystem over here, a wetland, which filters water and makes it high quality, 
and we haven't quite worked out how to value those. Yeah, yeah, it's really tragic. So given those concerns, what is something that we could all do to help protect wetlands? Okay, so um, talking about wetlands and wetland birds and um, the water quality issues, so advocating for your wetlands, um, looking out for your local wetlands so you all know where they are, (laughs) and um, making sure that they are protected, that, yeah, nobody's destroying them because we've got hardly any left. So we really do need to protect every single little bit now. Um, It's everybody's job. Everybody can do that. Everybody can advocate, um, everybody can try to do trapping, um, predator control in their back gardens, try to recycle and, um, yeah, just be more sustainable in the way that we are as, as a nation is a really important, important thing. I think that's very good advice and a nice way to finish off what has been, as usual, a fascinating series of ripper yarns. We didn't even get on to half a dozen of the other species <laughs> that you're working on, so we might have to bring you back in. But thank you very much, Emma, and all the best with the future work. That's it for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now and never miss an episode.